And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. All right, the passage we're looking at this morning is uh, Exodus 7, 1 through eight fifteen. And as you know, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus here this fall, and we're going to continue to do so. But I do want to give you a heads up that this will be our last message in Exodus until the new year. Starting next week, we'll be spending four weeks uh, talking about the advent of the Lord, the first advent of the Lord that we celebrate at Christmas. So we'll be taking a bit of a break right in the middle of the plagues. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus 7, 1 through 8, 15, the first set of judgments that God brings on the people of Egypt, specifically why these in particular today, these are the two or three plagues that were able to be imitated by the magicians of Pharaoh, and then we'll look at the balance of them when we return in the new year. So let me give you the key verse for this morning. It's Exodus 7, 5, and it really serves as the title of the message this morning, verse 5 of Exodus 7, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Know he is the Lord. God is going to, by his power, demonstrate to the people of Egypt, and not only will they understand it as a factual truth claim, they are going to agree with it before the Lord's work is done. He is saying the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. We need to understand this in, not in light of how we might normally think about this. So think about it this way. If somebody wants a job and you apply for a job, you might fill out an application and you might put together a resume. Send the application in, send in the resume, and what you want to do for your potential employer is show them that you meet the minimum qualifications for the job, show them that you can successfully do the job, and probably even more than that nowadays, you've got to show you can do better than anybody else. So what you ought to do, if you want to do like most people, is lie on your resume 
That's a terrible idea, but people do. So what we might think of God is doing here is he's sort of submitting his resume for the job of God to the people of Egypt, and he is not. He is not here trying to establish in their minds through his qualifications and what he's got going, his good and his bad and his indifferent, that he is God. So God doesn't try to make a case for himself. God is not trying to persuade the people of Egypt. God is declaring, I am the Lord, time for you to get on board. He's not trying to persuade. He's not trying to make a case. He's not trying to coddle the Egyptians along. He is saying, here's what is true. I am the Lord, and what your job is to do is to know he is the Lord. We have to understand something about God. God doesn't need us to believe in him. He is not like the magical stuff you find in Disney movies where stuff doesn't happen until you believe in it. You believe hard enough and the star on the top of the Christmas tree starts to shine and the money shows up in the mail. God does not require us to believe in him in order for him to exist. What he says, what you ought to do, what you are required of is you need to believe in me for you to exist. So what we need to do, knowing this is the case, knowing that our job is to know he is the Lord, when we read a historical account like we're going to this morning, and I've already read the first 13 verses, and I'm going to read the other sections as we work our way through it this morning, um, we need to understand where we fit into the story. We, in, in other words, we need to place ourselves in, this, in, the, in the history here. And what we tend to do when we think about ourselves, how we fit into a story, we place ourselves in one of two positions. We place ourselves usually in the place of the victim. We are like the people of Israel, waiting for God to deliver us. All we're doing is minding our own business, making our bricks, and God needs to save us from that big, evil Pharaoh. Now, some of us, in our arrogance, we place ourselves in the shoes of Moses and Aaron and say, well, where I see myself, I'm the hero here. I need to show up, be faithful, and let people know who's in charge. My job is to be the hero, that everyone might know who is the Lord. Oh, yeah, I'm, yes, it's God, too, but certainly he needs my help. Where do we really fit in the story? If you really want to read this right, you're Pharaoh. And your heart is hard. And your default move is to deny that he is the Lord. To really understand what God is doing in us, what we need to do is understand we're, we're Pharaoh. Our heart is hard. And we need to, be, to have God move in such a way that our hearts might soften and be willing to trust. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. He's God. I'm not. No he is the Lord. Okay, first section, verses 1 through 13. Know he is the Lord. Why should we know he is the Lord? Because he is powerfully in charge. Because God is powerfully in charge. He's not just in charge. He's powerfully in charge, and he wants to demonstrate it through this miracle he works through Aaron and Moses with the staffs. Have you ever heard of the Maori war dance? I'm probably saying it wrong. It's called the Hakka dance. If you watch rugby, especially New Zealand rugby, there are some Maori rugby teams, and they, before the rugby match, they will do a haka dance or a Maori war dance. You've probably seen it, and you don't know what I'm talking about, but they do a lot of stomping and slapping of their thighs and their chest and shouting and stick their tongue out. It's kind of like really, really old-fashioned trash talk is what it is. 
What it is, is this dance was done by warriors in order to communicate both to themselves and the people around them, we're going to kick your hiney. Now, in war, that was important, building up their confidence. We're going to destroy you. We're going to have victory over you. It's a way of demonstrating their strength and their courage in battle. And really what we read about here, this little teeny miracle is sort of God saying, it's about to get busy up in here. I mean, this first miracle with the stakes, what is the total extent of the damage to the people of Egypt? They lost some of their best walking sticks. I mean, the magicians don't have just any old walking stick. I mean, these were some of their best walking sticks. They're gone. I mean, they're they're never getting those back. Unless for some reason, Aaron's walking stick gets a stomach ache and anyway... That's inappropriate, I don't know. So what God is doing, he does this great miracle. And the way you maybe have read this in your lifetime is, well, they do this miracle, but at the end it's sort of a loss for Moses and Aaron because the Egyptian magicians were also able to make snakes. So it's like, oh, this is kind of a dud. And, and that's not what the Egyptians shot, thought. At the end of the story, what happens? Aaron's snake eats the others. And the Egyptians would have immediately known this was a bad omen. Each one of these powerful acts of God that we call plagues is designed to target one of the many Egyptian deities that they worshipped. And the snake was one of them. And immediately, right off the get-go, the serpent that belongs to the people of God has devoured the serpents of Egypt. And this is like a Maori war dance. All of a sudden they go, whoa, these people are serious. This was not a loss, despite Pharaoh's hard heart. This was an omen, an indication of what is to come. God is powerfully in charge, and we ought to be aware of it. So you might be asking, how did the magicians do what they did? Are they the early predecessors to David Copperfield or Siegfried and Roy? They have a chamber of snakes in the back that they whipped out and quickly stuck their staff behind their back and threw the snake out. So I'm going to blow your mind. The Bible has miracles in it. It gets worse. God isn't the only one in the Bible who does miracles. There are all kinds of evil spiritual forces in the world, and here you have the magicians of Egypt in obedience to Satan, imitating and copying in a very real fashion, the miracle God had demonstrated as a way of trying to say God is nothing special. God isn't the Lord. He is one of many. And that's why it's important at the end of the story that the snake of Aaron ate the other snakes to say, no, God is something special. He is not a God. He is the God. He is not a Lord. He is the Lord. There are none other. And we need to keep this in mind. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is not something that should be new to us. We should be well aware of this. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I'm going to read verse 10, 11, and 12 of Ephesians 6. The Bible says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of family members who have different views than you at Thanksgiving. No, that's not what it says, does it? That you may be able to stand against people who go to different kinds of churches than you, but they believe the gospel. 
doesn't say that. Then you may be able to stand against your neighbor who's a real... You filled in the blank. I don't need to. You can ask for forgiveness for what you thought in a minute. What's it say? That you may stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, if you understand anything about the author of the Bible, which is God, through Paul, Paul is not using this as a figure of speech of all things bad in the world. There is a real angel who rebelled against God, and he is moving to destroy all things that God has done. So the devil only has just one agenda. It's a very simple agenda. Kill everybody. That's the job. Make sure everybody dies and no one has relationship with God. And what the Bible tells us is our fight, our strength must come from God because we are not standing against somebody who disagrees with us. We're not standing against political troubles. We're not standing against other people. We're standing against the devil. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this is difficult for us as modern-day Americans to get our head around. We're scientific. What are you talking about? We stand, we're here to stand against spiritual forces. I don't know how to read this different. If you want to read it as a figure of speech, go ahead and do so. You are welcome to be wrong. The Bible tells us there is an unseen world, and it consists of God's, uh, those who serve and worship the Lord, and those who have rebelled against the Lord, and those who are opposed to the Lord are opposed to us, and their goal is to kill us. If God doesn't give them permission to kill us, their goal is to kill us slower. And we're worried about so many other things that we think the big loss when Moses and Aaron made a snake was that the other things could make snakes too, and they're saying, no, no. We stand in the Lord in strength over the spiritual forces of evil. The conflict we are in as believers is a spiritual conflict. It is not a political conflict. It is not a relational conflict between us and others. It is primarily a conflict that is spiritual, and we see this demonstrated when Moses and Aaron make the snake. And they realize quite quickly the spiritual forces of evil are going to seek to imitate in order to undermine the work that God was doing. So, if we're fighting a spiritual battle opposed by spiritual forces, where does our strength come from? Look back at Exodus chapter 7, verse 6. Here's where our strength comes from. When we know he is the Lord and we know he is powerfully in charge, Moses and Aaron did this. Moses and Aaron, they did just as the Lord commanded them. Hey, wait a minute. All of a sudden it went from really exciting spiritual stuff to boring church stuff. This is the way God does it. How do we have strength in the Lord? Here it is. This is the super magical experiment. You ready? It's obedience. How do we recognize that God is the Lord? Well, let me put it this way. The Lord is whoever you're obeying. 
The obedience of your life demonstrates your God. And what Moses and Aaron have decided to do in the basis that they have to face spiritual forces that are bigger than them, you know what? I think God is the Lord, and as such, we're going to obey him. And the reason that Moses and Aaron were effective for the Lord is because they just simply did what he told them to do. I don't know if you've ever navigated a river, maybe fishing or rafting. There's an easy way to go down the river. What's the easy way to go down the river? Stay in the current. Now, you might discover the river doesn't go straight in a straight line. Have you noticed this? Very few of them do. They make turns and corners and whatnot. And you might say to yourself as a smart individual, you know, this would be a lot quicker if we went straight. So what you do in your little raft is when you come to a corner, you just keep rowing straight across the ground. Are you going to get there quicker? You're going to get there dumber. I mean that in the, no, I don't mean applied at all. That's not a good idea. How do you get down the river? You stay in the current of where the river is going. And this is how all obedience is. Obedience is saying, well, I think I know a better way. No, the better way is to stay in the current of what God is up to. Where I submit what I think ought to be to what God says ought to be, trusting that the power doesn't come from what I'm doing. The power comes from where I am in the current. And this is all Moses and Aaron are doing. They are participating in the power of God, not by being powerful, but finding themselves through obedience in the powerful current of what God is doing. Let's compare this with Pharaoh. Look at Exodus 7, 16. We'll get to it in a minute, but let's look ahead. God says, you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not, what? Obeyed. Pharaoh was saying, my way is the right way. And as a result, the only power that Pharaoh had was his own power and the power of the spiritual forces of darkness. All he had going for him was his own personal power and the power of Satan. That's all he had. You say, well, that seems like a lot. Well, not when you compare it to God. Because what Moses and Aaron had was the power of God's unstoppable purposes. And so therefore, the power of Pharaoh and the power of Satan, they got nothing. Absolutely nothing. The power of God is experienced through boring old obedience. Look at Matthew 21, 28. Say, really? How does this work? Jesus told a funny story about obedience. Matthew 21, 28. I'm going to read uh, 28 through 32. So Jesus says, tells, tells this story. What do you think? Man had two sons. Okay, what do we got so far? A man, two sons. And he went to his first son and he said, hey, son, go work in the vineyard today. And his son said, I don't want to. His dad said, I'll shut off your Wi-Fi. said, fine, I got four bars. This is real, people. Okay, anyway, moving on. But his son said, no, forget it, I'm not going to do it. But, verse 29, afterward, he changed his mind and he went. So dad goes to his son, 
go work in the vineyard, and his son says, forget about it, old man. And then dad leaves, and the son goes, nah, I better go do it. So he goes and does it. Now, he goes to his second son. His second son was working at a soup kitchen, and later on he was going to do some other good deeds. He went to his other son, and he said, go work in the vineyard, and, and his son said, yes, sir, I'll be happy to go. But he didn't go. So you get one son, to take a hike, old man. The other son, I'd be happy to go, but he didn't. So the question is, which one of these two sons was obedient? The one who actually did the thing. Because see, this is what we get in our heads. We think, well, it's hard to be obedient because I don't really want to do it. Well, right, that's why it's called obedience. So, well, you know what? I'm going to be obedient to God when, when I get a quiver in my liver I want to wake up in the morning and just like the spirit picks me up out of bed and drops me next to my Bible with a cup of coffee. Then I'll do my quiet time when I'm really moved to do it. And when I read this, what I'm hearing is, you know, sometimes you drag yourself kicking and screaming to your Bible. They say, well, that's not very respectful. Well, Jesus is saying, which is more respectful? The one who says, I will go and doesn't, or the one who just says, you know what, I got to get her done. And he's saying the one who is actually obedient is the one who is participating in the purposes of the Father. Know he is the Lord. God is powerfully in charge. So what does this mean to me? I'm not. What is God's purpose for my life? That I might in simple worship do what he tells me to do and not do the things he tells me not to do. One more verse. It's over in Luke 22, 42. Because you say, well, I struggle with obedience. It'd be a lot easier if God would ask me to do things I want to do. Let's look at Jesus' life. He came out and he went, and as was his normal custom, he went to the Mount of Olives. His disciples followed him. When he came to that place, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. I want to spoil the story. They didn't. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. I don't know which disciple was throwing the stones. He knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What did Jesus want? He, he didn't want to suffer. No one wants that. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. Christ knows the suffering he is going to have to endure, and what he's doing is taking the humanity of his suffering, the difficulty of his suffering, the challenge of knowing on the one hand he knows God's purpose, on the other hand he knows how much this is going to be difficult, how difficult this is going to be, and he is saying in obedience, not my will to avoid suffering, but your will to provide redemption for all of mankind. No, he is the Lord. God is powerfully in charge, simply as a way of saying, not my will, but his be done. Religion will tell us what I want to do is be good so that God will give me what I want. Religion says I will be good to get my will. If I'm good enough, God will give me the stuff I want. That's what religion is designed to do. Jesus says something different. It is good when God gets what he wants. Because he is the Lord, he is powerfully in charge, 
charge, we can obey him. And what Moses is doing, if you've been following along with us, Moses is learning in the course of his life to take his own personal will and form it to the will of God. What do we call it when we say, I'm going to take my, my designs, my agenda, my purposes, and try to form it more into what God wants? It's called obedience. And you'll say, well, you'll say, well of course Moses did that. He's like a religious hero. And if you think Moses is a religious hero, you've never read the Old Testament. He is going to continually struggle with this throughout the course of his life as he seeks to press into the will of the Lord and obey him because he knows who is God. Exodus 7, 1 through 13, know he is the Lord, God is powerfully in charge, and we owe him our obedience. Look with me at Exodus seven fourteen. What we sometimes refer to as the first plague. We have to understand how God is working here. God uh, is going to direct his power according to his purposes. If you've ever seen somebody painting, of course, I'm thinking of Bob Ross. You know who Bob Ross is? How do you not know who Bob Ross is? He's got the big poofy hair or had the big poofy hair. Who's in charge of deciding where the paint goes? The painter. The painter is going to direct the paint exactly where it goes. The paint doesn't get to argue. If it did, it'd be a very weird painting. But the, the painter is the one who directs the paint precisely where it goes. So we need to know that he is the Lord. And God is unchangeable, but he changes whatever he wants, like a great painter. Let's read Exodus seven fourteen through 25. It's kind of lengthy. But it's a story. It's, a, of course, a historical account, so it's kind of fun to read. Listen to what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, that is Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff. Stretch your hand out over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, all their pools of water, so they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Gross. It doesn't say that. That's me responding. Verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. Boring old obedience. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he didn't even take this to heart. All the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. 
Again, the people of Egypt worshipped the Nile as a god, a god who provided for fertile ground, a god who provided fish. And here in a moment, the Lord kills the Nile. That's the whole imagery that's being designed here, is the Nile stinks and is of blood. God, in a single uh, stroke of the staff of Aaron, is able to take the god of the Nile and kill it. Dead as a doornail. Doornail. The Nile god is dead, and not only is it dead, it smells like it's dead. Intended to show that God is the Lord, and the unchangeable God changes whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And the magicians, again, imitate what the Lord has done through Moses and Aaron. Now, it's difficult to know exactly how they imitated what they did. If they did it on a large scale or a small scale, if they had a cup of water and they poured it out, turned to blood, or if they had a most of the water was blood at this point, but either way, the point is, they did a, a, a powerful work that was seen to be of the same kind as what Moses and Aaron did. In fact, it was so powerful, Pharaoh said, oh, that's no big deal, anybody can do that. Verse 22 says, they could, by their own magical arts, they did the same thing, and Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Through their spiritual deception, they were able to deceive Pharaoh and all those who are watching, that God is nothing special. God doesn't have any more power than anybody else. He is not the Lord because anybody can do this. It's worth mentioning. Maybe you ought to turn to it. Revelation 13. Revelation 13. We're going to go a little far afield here, but it's worth it. The enemy, Satan, has been deceiving mankind since the beginning when he deceived Adam and Eve in the garden by saying, did God really say? That is, do you really need God? Why don't you just eat from this tree? You won't need God. Through Exodus, he's deceiving, is God really such a big deal? Anybody can turn water to blood. And this is going to continue on until the end. This is Revelation 13, verse 11. Heads up, this is weird. And he said, we'd just been talking about the Nile turning to blood. We passed weird a long time ago, okay? Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Okay, it, I haven't, I've read one sentence. It's weird. Another beast. What was the first beast? There were two beasts. One came out of the sea. One came out of the earth. And even before that, there was a dragon. So long story short, we don't have time to go into it today, although I know you'd love to. We have the dragon who is Satan. You have the beast of the earth, and then you have the beast of the sea. And what you have here is a false trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father sends the Son to die for the world to provide salvation. Afterwards, the Holy Spirit comes on those who would believe that those who would believe by the Spirit might worship and glorify who? The Son. The Son glorifies the Father by obeying Him. We glorify the Son by worshiping Him by His Spirit. And what we have here is a false trinity. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. The dragon is Satan, so this is not a big surprise. This third beast is acting like the first creature. It exercises all authority of the first beast, beast of the land, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. What does the Holy Spirit allow us to do? Worship Christ in spirit and truth. And what does this deception do? The first beast makes people worship their second beast, their fake redeemer. How do we say it's a fake redeemer? Look how it says. 
He had a mortal wound and it was healed. Not only was he a fake uh, savior, he in fact was one that appears to have been raised from the dead. If you want to fake like you're Jesus, what ought you fake do? Fake rise from the dead. So that's what you have here. So you have this great deception, this beast of the, of the um, earth, drawing people to worship the beast of the sea who had seemingly raised from the dead. It gets worse. Look at this. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. By the signs it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image of the beast. So he's doing miracles, and he says, you know what you guys ought to do? Make a big giant idol that looks like that guy. Then when, you, when he's not around, you can worship the idol. It's awesome. And they say, well, he does do miracles. How could it go wrong? Look at verse 15. It, goes, it gets crazier. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so the image of the beast might even speak. So they make an idol, and this false spirit kind of beast now by spiritual power is able to make this idol come alive. It causes everyone, small, great, rich, and forth, to be marked with the mark of the beast. If you want to do business and have a job, you had to have a mark of the beast which said, I worship the beast, I worship his image, and all of this because, why? False miracles, false power. And I've said this before, and it offended some people, so I feel the need to offend you again. Who are the people primed to be deceived? People who claim the name of Christ but have no real relationship with him because they don't really have a real relationship with him because they just find the benefits of being in church and a religious social club nice. Now all of a sudden the end of the world comes and some guy who seems to rise from the dead, he's doing miracles. Hey, that's what we've been talking about for the last 20 years. This is a religious deception designed to deceive religious people. And this is precisely what was going on in Egypt. Spiritual power designed to say God is not special he isn't the Lord. There's lots of lords. He can fit in where he fits in. Look at verse 15 of Revelation 13. It, that was the beast of the land, was allowed to give breath. What does it mean by was allowed? Notice that little quick phrase, was allowed. What does that mean? Somebody's giving permission. Who would that be? The actual Lord. See, nothing is done on heaven and on earth unless the Lord says, okay, that can go. That fits in with where my plan is going. Even in the midst of a great deception that God is not Lord, we see a phrase here that tells us he is Lord. There is nothing going on that God has not intended as a part of his plan to redeem. So Pharaoh was deceived. Flip back to Exodus 7. Your hand, fingers getting tired of flipping on your device? Pharaoh, so far, had not obeyed. The reason is he was not concerned about God as Lord. He was not concerned at all about this God that Moses and Aaron were talking about. Down in verse 23, he's even going to say it this way. He went into his house and didn't even take it into account. Oh, the Nile turned to blood, must be Tuesday. 
Not even a big deal. The, the magicians will work that out. God is nothing. Know he is the Lord. The unchangeable God changes whatever he wants. Here's what we can ask ourselves if we want to put ourselves in Pharaoh's shoes and avoid the fate that he had is this. Does my life demonstrate that God is unchangeable and he changes whatever he wants? What do we call that when we recognize God gets to do whatever he wants and we may not like it? The Bible calls that the fear of the Lord. Now, it's not a terror. It's not we screaming out in fright. It's a recognition that because I'm not home yet, because our flesh is weak, my ways are not always God's ways, and many times God does things that we don't like so much. Anybody have God do something that you didn't like so much? Just me? That's that's weird. A recognition that coming down the pipe from the unchangeable God who gets to change whatever he wants to fit his good purposes, a recognition that that happens on a routine and regular basis ought to derive in our hearts a, a loving yet respectful fear of God that says he always gets what he wants and sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes that means this journey is going to go places I don't want to go. That when I'm riding in the current of the power of God, that, that river is going to go places that I don't want to go, that I want to get off the river. But if we say, he is the Lord, like Moses and Aaron did, we say, no, he is the Lord. The Bible is true. The Bible says God is the way he says he is. He is always good. He is always gracious. But he is also in charge. I ought to, in my heart, have a, a righteous, respectful fear that says, okay, it's his way, not my way. Here's how I might put it. How do you think, how would you define your relationship with God? Is God for you a fortune cookie? How could God be a fortune cookie? Don't you always cough a bunch after you eat those? Every time I get a fortune cookie, it's like, I don't like these. I hate these. I just keep eating them. All I ought to do is take the paper out of them. Um, God is a fortune cookie. Okay, I'm gonna, okay, God, I need something inspirational. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand with your staff. And this is not inspirational. Try again. The Lord said to Ezekiel, I'm going to kill your wife. That's in there. The Lord said to Ezekiel, also after she dies, don't mourn for her. Because I want to teach Israel a lesson that when they all die, they won't even have time to have funerals. What do you think Ezekiel said to that? Your call, man. That's tough. He's got a fortune cookie. You open it up, see what kind of see if there's lottery numbers in there. He's got a teddy bear. There's a Christian radio station. I listen to it, so I'm not judging it. And it's not the Dove. It's the national one. What's it called? Air One. But their tagline: positive and encouraging. That's great. I love positive and encouraging. But I just that's not the title of the Christian life. Have you read a Bible? It is positive, encouraging, and a whole bunch of other stuff. If the Bible is only positive and encouraging, it sure doesn't fit in my life. Does it fit yours? Is God just a big teddy bear that when things are rough, I can snuggle up with him? Certainly, yes. But he had better be a whole lot more than that. He had better be a God of justice that those who have wronged us will receive their due. And if you think I'm kidding, the, the doctrine of hell is not a problem for people who are under persecution today. They say, if they are going to reject Christ, then God, may they have what they have trusted. 
Is God a rabbit's foot? Get up, rub my Bible in the morning, see if my day is going to be hashtag blessed. Some of you, did you guys Google hashtag, those who didn't know what it is last week? Okay. What are you going to Google today? Ebenezer. That was in a song. None of you knew what that meant. You need to find out what that means. It's important. It's an important part of that song. Okay. Thank you for playing it, Seth. I appreciate it. But none of us know what Ebenezer is. Look at They're all getting their phones out. Okay. <laughs> Finally, is God an advice column? You only need 10 steps to a happy marriage. It's got to be in here somewhere. Husbands, serve your wives like Christ served the church. What? Maybe there are six steps to being a good parent. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's advice here on how to be successful in my career. Has God an advice column for you? How to have your best life now, every day of Friday? Give me a break. Or is God the Lord? And although he extends his gracious and enduring love to us through Christ... Every now and then, when we recognize it, the hair on the back of our neck ought to stand up and a bead of sweat go down when we realize when he is on mission to make us like Jesus, he will do whatever it takes. And some of us have endured some of that, and it is not easy. Know he is the Lord. The unchangeable Lord changes whatever he wants. And we worship him as we live in obedience, even in the midst of some of those most difficult times now we move on Exodus chapter 8 verse 1 look at the end of Exodus 7 the people of Egypt are digging along the Nile trying to find fresh water all the water is turned to blood on the surface of the land it appears the subterranean water was not turned into blood which was handy otherwise they would have died they were able to dig into the ground to get water so the people of Egypt are under terrible hardship and what does Pharaoh do he goes home He's got servants to dig his water. No compassion, no empathy, no worry. This is not the way God is. No, he is the Lord. God, who needs no help, is God who helps. Let's read Exodus 8, 1 through 15. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that they shall come up into your house and into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall also come upon you and on your people and on all your servants. You've got a yellow frog there in your face. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools. Make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So... Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. Frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But, what's it say? The magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called on Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people. I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me. Tell me when to plead for you and your people that the frogs will be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow, just sidebar, as soon as possible is what he's saying. It's not, oh yeah, tomorrow's good for me. Difficult verse to translate. As soon as it can be done, make it done. Because you see, when Moses leaves, he immediately prays. Okay. 
uh, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So verse 11, the frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses and pulled a big joke on Pharaoh. The frogs died in the houses, courtyards, and fields, and they gathered together all these frogs into heaps, and the land stinketh. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. No, he is the Lord. The God who needs no help is one who does help. A story is told of a search and rescue team member in Arizona who is working to retrieve a hiker who had gotten uh, sort of stuck, and on their way, the search and rescue team member fell and broke his leg. Now, so the hiker needed help getting out, but the search and rescue team member needed a helicopter. So they sent a helicopter in, not for the lost hiker, because once the team got to him, they were able to guide him out. They sent the helicopter in for the search and rescue team member who'd snapped his leg on the way in. The rescuer needed rescuing. This is different with God. God never needs any help. God never paints himself into a corner. He never gets lost. He never uh, doesn't know what to should do or wrings his hand in trouble. He is the one who is always there to help because he needs no help. So these frogs are coming up onto the land. This is important, the fertility God in Egypt. Uh, God they worshipped in hopes of having lots of kids and helping their cows would have lots of uh, baby cows and whatnot. Uh, this fertility God they worshipped, for whatever reason, it seems weird to me, she had a frog head. I don't know, it's weird. But that's, what this is, that's the deal. They had this God they worshipped to make sure they had lots of kids, and they had a, a fertility God they worshipped. And so the, all these frogs are coming up. They're in their beds, they're in their kitchens. Everywhere you could look, there were frogs. Every nook and cranny. Anywhere there could be a frog, there was a frog. In a life past, I investigated auto accidents, and there was a truck that had become disabled on top of a spider nest over in Klamath Falls. You've seen those little small brown spiders, and they swarm? Are you familiar? If you're not, don't be. It's stuff of nightmares. Anyway, this truck became infested with spiders. Anywhere you might think there would be a spider, there was three. Yes, under the door handles. Yes, in every part of the engine. In every part of the engine compartment. Uh, we uh, tried to exterminate the truck, and the tow yard became infested with spiders. We had to exterminate the entire tow yard. It went to a shop to get repaired. We had to exterminate the shop. This was a nightmare. How do you get rid of all these spiders? And this is what, how do you get rid of all these frogs? So the magicians of Egypt show up, and what do they do? They bring more frogs. And see, you're laughing. That's precisely what it's supposed to do. The way it was written is is intended for us. You're no help whatsoever. What we need right now, just so you know, magicians, is not more of these frogs. What is the frog designed by God to do when you pick it up? Anybody ever picked up a frog? Has a frog ever not peed on your hand? Some of you have not had this experience. Can you imagine the mess this would make? And then after they die, they're snow shoveling these things out. And the magicians of Pharaoh show up, like, well, we just want to show you that anybody can do this. Here's more frogs. And Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh do? Look, where does he go? Where does he go? Verse 8. Verse 7, magicians did the same thing. They made more frogs. So Pharaoh called who? 
Moses and Aaron. When it's time to get rid of the frogs, he's starting to see who's really in charge here. Plead with the Lord. Sure, my magicians can make frogs like it's coming out their ears. I need somebody who can make frogs go away. Somebody who is actually in charge of the situation. And Moses says, tell me to pray, and I will pray for you. At the end of the book of Job, Job has spent all of his suffering with these three friends of his, and friends is in air quotes. They have spent their entire time telling him that his suffering is because he's a bad Christian. At the end of the book, God tells these three friends, in theological terms, you guys are morons. I will forgive you for what you said to Job, if what? Do you, have you read it? If Job prays for you. What did Job do? Thought about it for a minute. No, he didn't. Job made a sacrifice and he prayed to the Lord on behalf of these friends who were useless. And Pharaoh comes to Moses and Moses doesn't even strike a deal. He just simply says, tell me when to pray for you and I will pray for you. God helps. Pharaoh, who wouldn't even lift a finger for his own people, has Moses seek the Lord who is more than glad to help him. Because this is God's nature. Look with me at Matthew 5, 43. We're going to close with this. By close with this, I mean nothing. It's just a way to keep you in tune just for a couple more minutes. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said, this is Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What You want to be like your Father? Pray for those who persecute. He makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what's your reward there? Don't even tax collectors do that? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Don't even the Gentiles do that? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How does the Father demonstrate his perfection to us? He intervenes on our behalf. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need to understand that verse does not say, when he saw our potential, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God in him. God is the one who needs no help, but because of his loving kindness and his faithfulness, he extends to us his help through his son, saying, in your rebellion, I will send you a savior. In your sin, I will send you righteousness if you will just but believe in my son. Once the pressure was off of Pharaoh, he no longer sought the Lord. Okay, three applications, then we're going to close with this, okay? And I said we're almost done, so this still counts. Hebrews 12, 13. Once the pressure is off, Pharaoh no longer served the Lord. So first thing I want you to consider is this. Under the difficulty that God brings into our life, when we experience the challenges that life brings, and many of them extraordinarily difficult, we have two things we need to be aware of. Number one is under the pressure of suffering, 
we have a tendency to harden our heart and say God is not good. And when the pressure is relieved, we have a tendency to say God is good, but I don't need him. Both of those are difficult things that we need to to wrestle with, both in suffering and in times of great blessing. We need to say, I know he is the Lord, and I need him. So I'm going to read Hebrews 12, 3 through 12. We don't really have time for a lot of comment on it, so you can expect extensive comments. Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's saying here, when you're growing weary and faint-hearted, which you will do, which I will do, consider him who also grew weary and endured it because of our sin. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we each have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we actually respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. When we're under the difficulty that the Lord brings into our lives, what we must do is in worship say, He is doing this for me to be trained by it. And He is good. He is not harsh. He is not absent-minded. He is seeking to generate in me a likeness of Christ that can only occur in these kinds of circumstances. And in faith, we can endure under it. And when that pressure comes off, if it does, may we seek the Lord's faithfulness to help us stay true even when things are going well. So first thing, don't harden your hearts under under God's discipline and don't waver when the pressure is relieved. Okay, second thing I might suggest we think about. Humble ourselves. He is God we are not. First Peter 5, 5 and 6 says this. I'll read it very quickly. You don't have to turn there. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud. Who is proud in the story we read? Pharaoh. Who are we in the story? You don't want to say it, do you? Pharaoh. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, not our time, at the proper time, he will lift us up. Humble ourselves. God is God. If we serve him out of the fear of the Lord and out of worship of him, if we honor him and agree with him and love him, he will 
continue in faithfulness to us. Finally, last thing, avoid deception and false power. I only say this because I don't know what tomorrow holds, but at some point in history, that guy we read about in Revelation, at some point that's coming. And we need to avoid being deceived by those who have a form of power. How do we avoid that? Again, this is boring stuff. Are you ready? You might want to know your Bible. So that when so-and-so deceiver shows up, yet yeah, that's not what Jesus is like. How do we avoid deception? Cling to Jesus. Not some form of power that might be enticing. Avoid deception. Here's one, I'm, this is going to get me in trouble. You're welcome. One of the best ways to avoid deception, turn off Christian television. Now, there's some good stuff on Christian TV. I just haven't seen it. I, I, frankly, I don't have time for it, but... Uh, yeah, no, just turn it off. You got, it, you, got the, you got their source material, allegedly, and go there. Well, that's boring. I want to I hear a guy tell me how this applies to the red heifer. Well, see, now I'm going to really get into it. How about just open our Bible? We need to know the Bible, not what the guy on TBN says. Better close before I lose my job. <laughs> know he is the Lord. Know he is the Lord. God is powerfully in charge. Amen? God is unchangeable, but he changes whatever he wants. He's not asking our permission. But thank the Lord. He is the Lord, and he is the God who helps primarily by sending us Jesus.